Good morning. Hope you're enjoying some winter weather. If you're not enjoying it, it's going to be just as cold. So just enjoy it for what it is. One way or the other, it's here. Uh, I'm excited about this morning's lesson. I'm excited to find out what this morning's lesson is about. I've had a, a head cold this week, and I looked at my notes this morning, and there was a section of it I looked at, and I thought, I don't remember writing that. And so there's, there's no telling what's going to come out of my mouth this morning. It's going to be a surprise, an adventure for all of us. Um, Fortunately, it's a passage that I'm, I love to preach about and talk about probably every year at some point, usually in January. I like to look at the first chapter of John, uh, especially in January. It's a good way to kind of frame the year for me. And there's a small section of little gospel stories at the beginning of John that are just as simple as can be, and yet every time I read them, I feel like I learned something new or noticed something about them that I needed that year. So I just come back around every January to these three little gospel stories where Jesus has entered the world. He's been introduced to us in grand fashion by John. If you read John's gospel, he starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and it, you know, there's grand introduction to Jesus. That's the cosmic introduction to Jesus, but then there's the personal introduction to Jesus where people just kind of run into him or are introduced to him more casually the way we would meet someone and we're given these stories. And each of them tells us a little something about what it means to share the faith that we have with others. The first one is a teacher and his students. John the Baptist has been out with his disciples for a considerable period of time. He's collected disciples, he's trained disciples. And now he is in the process of kind of handing off his disciples to have them follow Jesus. Verses 35 to 39 says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. This is the dream, by the way, if you're a minister of the gospel. This is the way you want it to work. You have some people that, of course, just follow you around and attend to everything you say. Uh, I haven't met those people yet, but I've been told as a minister you're supposed to get a cult following at some point in your career. And they follow you around, and then you just point and you say, well, there's Jesus, do what he says, and everyone just does it, right? That's the dream. That's supposed to be the way it works. Behold the Lamb of God, and they say, okay, and they behold him. And having beheld him, they go and they follow him, and they say to Jesus, where are you staying? And he says, well, over there. And they say, okay, that's where we're staying now. That's the dream. That's the way it's supposed to work. A teacher said, look, there he is, and faith, boop, results, just pops up, like the sum of an equation, Put in the right digits and out comes the number. Look, there's Jesus. They say, okay, there he is, and they believe. That's the dream. That's how it's supposed to work. And some days, it really is that simple. The next story, kind of similar. Only this time, instead of a teacher and his disciples, it's two brothers who run into Jesus. This is the text of verses 40 through 42. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own bro brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. 
He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Again, this is the dream. This is the way it's supposed to work, that we want it to work. Now, not speaking as a minister or a teacher, but as a parent, as a a family man. And all of you have some kind of family you're connected with, and you want to share your faith in your home. And how is it supposed to work? Here's the dream. You go to a family member, and you say, I found Jesus. And they say, great, I'll follow Him. And they instantaneously have this spark of faith, and they go and they follow and they meet Jesus, and they say, hello, Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name. And they say, that's great. And everything goes on from there. It's just so simple and cut and dry. Uh, somebody, a family member says, look, here he is, and then, boop, faith results. The result of an equation. He said the right words, faith pops out, and it's short and sweet. Yeah, you're, you're, you're catching on now. John's setting us up for some kind of... Uh, unexpected next story, right? Because he's had two stories that were just too simple. Two stories that were just too simple. A teacher said, there's Jesus. And people said, great, I believe that. A family member said, look, there's Jesus. And the brother said, yeah, I believe that. We know in actual life, that's not actually the way that it goes quite often. And so John then gives us this third story. And this is between two friends. That could have been any of them, right? It could have been the teacher and students. It could have been family. But it happens to be between two friends. And we know this story all too well in our life. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. This story is a little bit different. It's not done yet, but it's already a little bit different. What happened? A man met Jesus, this man Philip, and he believes Jesus. Okay, good so far. And he wants to share this wonderful thing that he knows with his friend. And he goes to his friend, and he basically says what everybody else in every other story has said. I found Jesus. He says it very well. He says it eloquently, right? I even like Philip's little speech. Come, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I mean, that's a, that's a good introduction. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with his introduction to Jesus. But the response from Nathaniel is not wonderful. I've been looking for him too. Let's go see him. The response from Nathanael is not great. I believe everything you just told me. The response from Nathanael is skepticism. Not only do I not believe what you just told me to be true, I find it highly unlikely. In fact, I have a smart aleck, snide little remark in response to that. Nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. That's not the way it's going to work. We've had three stories. The first one, Somebody says, here's Jesus, faith results. Second story, somebody said, here's Jesus, faith results. Third story, look, here he is. Skepticism is the result. What happened here? Why didn't it work this time? I know the story's not done, but it's an important question. Because every one of us has encountered this. When you, that day you become a Christian you are on fire with 
passion to share the Gospel. And you have seen through the murky haze of life to see the glory that is Christ and you want to share it. And it's as clear to you as the sun in the sky. It's 2 plus 2 equals 4. And you go to a friend and you say, here He is. Here's Jesus. And they say, yeah, not interested. And it's disheartening. It's devastating. Because to you, it is so crystal clear. It's hard to imagine how anybody could not see it. Why didn't it work? I'll give you three thoughts this morning to, to be thinking about in this line, especially as it applies to our home life. Because this happens to parents quite a lot. Parents grow up perhaps in a Christian home, or maybe they come to faith as an adult, and then they decide, I want my kids to receive the faith and share the faith that I hold dear. And they say to their kids, all the things their parents said to them that produced faith in them. Or when they became a Christian, they repeat all the things that they heard when they were taught the Gospel. And they say all the right words, and they do all the right things, and it doesn't happen. And there's a surprise that comes with it. The surprise that only familiarity can give you. When somebody I don't know doesn't believe me, I'm not surprised by that. They don't know me. When somebody I don't know doesn't share my views on things, I'm not surprised. I mean, can't everybody be right all the time like I am, right? They just, they just don't know all the things that I know, and I'll, I'll, I'll show them, right? But when I'm at home, and I tell someone who's under my roof, who breaks bread at my table, when I share something with them and they don't agree, it's, it's shocking to me. Almost like there's something morally wrong with them. Can't you see it? Two plus two equals four. It's clear as day. Why can't you see it? One of the first problems, one of the first obstacles to sharing our faith at home is the belief that it's just going to be easy, that we'll say the words and it will just happen. That there won't be any skeptics in our household. That people will hear what we heard and they'll have the same response that we have. Those little people in your house and the big people in your house and your friends and your neighbors, each one of them has their own strange and mysterious journey to go on. And it's not as simple as simply saying the words that won you over and having the immediate result. And the first thing I want to share with you this morning about sharing the faith at home is that you have to stop being surprised by that. If you find yourself surprised, shocked, repulsed, disgusted, when you find skepticism or doubt in your own home, it actually starts getting in the way of the faith you're trying to share at home. The patience you might show to a stranger, you don't show to your own children, to your spouse, to your neighbors and your friends. To a neighbor, a stranger, you extend to them a lot of grace and say, well, it'll take time. But to loved ones, they, we say they ought to know better. And so because we don't expect it at home, we're shocked by it and often overcome by it. But there's work to do at home, and it really is work. And it's not going to be easy. And we have to stop being surprised. Second thing I want you to know is that you need to understand sharing the Gospel and the Gospel itself and the work of faith is not magic it is an act of God. 
This is a subtle thought, but I, I have been thinking this thought for quite some time and trying to find a way to put words to it, and I think I'm getting closer. Maybe sometime this year I'll be able to say it the way I really want to say it. But we have this idea about faith that it's magic and that it's produced by magic. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What is magic and how does it work? I don't mean like illusion kind of thing, but if you believed like in a wizard, you know, like in a story, how would it work? There's a guy, a wizard, and he says the magic words. Abracadabra. And it happens. Magic in the fairy tale is the belief that there is some underlying force and logic in the universe and that if you said the right words, the result would happen every time. Every time you say abracadabra, the rabbit comes out of the hat. Every time you wave the wand in the right way, right? If you watch the, if you watch the Harry Potter movies, literally you can go to school and learn magic. Swish and flick, right? There is a right way to use the magic wand, and if you do it correctly and you do the right Latin incantation, magic results. It just happens, unavoidably so. And we want faith to work exactly like that. We want someone to give us some magic words so that we can share faith. And it's a billion dollar industry of people trying to do it, by the way. You can go on Amazon. <laughs> people that got the books and the programs and the methods. And they'll come to your church and they'll say, it's just simple, I can train you how to do it. You're going to knock on somebody's door. It might be a perfect stranger. You're going to say these words. You're going to ask this question. You're going to set up a Bible study and this is how it's going to happen. works every time. And they tell you, hey, here's how to do it at home. You're going to tell your kids these words. You're going to teach these lessons. You're going to say these prayers and your kids... They're going to believe the things you believe. You're going to share your faith and it's going to work. Abracadabra. Every time. It's not how it works. Faith is not magic. Magic, there's a reason it's in fairy tales. Magic is the lie that the world is actually under your control. That if you could just say the right words, something would happen every time. That's what I want to believe. It's what every one of us wants to believe about the world. That if we could just do the right thing and say the right words, something would happen the same way every time and I would have control over it. My life, my destiny, my choices. Do the thing. And if it doesn't work out, I just didn't do it right. And so I'll learn the right Latin incantation or whatever it is and I'll do the right thing and I'll have the right habit and that will fix it. And then we try to take the same thing to our kids in our home. I'll say the right things, I'll do the right words. This worked for me, it'll work for them. And I'll repeat it, and out will come faith. Presto, abracadabra. All of that is the lie that it's all within our control. But here's the truth. You didn't come to faith that way either. There were some words that were spoken, but it wasn't a spell, and it wasn't an incantation. And it wasn't that someone had mysterious control over you and changed your mind. It was, in fact, a work of God. Something prompted it, but it was a work of God. Faith is the result of the work of God in an individual life. And there is no trick or shortcut that gets you there. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 
you know, I planted and I watered, polished water. Somebody else gave the increase. God makes things grow. And at the end of the day, we don't have that kind of control. And that is so hard, especially as a parent, where I want that kind of control. As a husband, I want that kind of control. I I want the people in my life to be persuaded by the words I say and to believe the things that I believe. And God says that's not how it works. Instead, there's something else involved that actually produces faith. I can participate, participate, I can go along for the ride, I can even help out a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's not an equation where there's a sum at the end and it works the same every time. I've heard Christians say this, I wish I had, I've been looking for that question that I could just ask someone, that I run into them at a coffee shop and I ask them the question and it leads to a Bible study and then we baptize them and they're saved and and there's no question. And if there was a question, it'd be different for the next guy. There are no magic words that make it happen. You can participate, you can work at it, and you should. But at the end of the day, there's no trick to it. And we're going to have to get over the disappointment of figuring out that it's not in our control. Not in that way. Third, not only that, not only do we have to stop being surprised when it doesn't go well, Not only do we have to give up the illusion that we're in control of other people's minds and hearts and souls and we can will them into faith, but we have to realize there are also things working against us. As if it wasn't hard enough, there are things actively trying to subvert the intention of sharing faith. Skepticism. There are voices in our culture that are just sharing and breeding the antithesis of faith of calling into question everything that to you sounds reasonable. And they work really hard at it. And they're good at it. In fact, if I may say so, they're better at it than us. The world make far better evangelists than we do. And they are sharing their bad news and they're sharing it well. Prejudice. While the words you say may not instantly produce faith, The sins you commit in your home will instantly produce doubt. Your kids and your wife and your husband and your friends and your neighbors, they hear your words, but they also see your actions. And they say, I don't know that I want to be like that. What did Nathaniel say? Nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. Does that strike you as the kind of guy who had met somebody from Nazareth? (laughs) He had some, it wasn't like Nazareth as a town, it wasn't that he looked at a map and thought, that's just not a very good place. He had met somebody from Nazareth and was not impressed. And from that time forward, everybody else that was from Nazareth was going to be like that guy, and he was sure of it. And that's the way people treat Christians. They've met some of us. And now they judge the whole business of faith based on that. And it's a prejudice, and it's not fair, but it's working against us, and it's out there. And hopelessness the world in the midst of selling skepticism and, and its cheap, cheap pleasures behind is also sowing the seeds of despair. We have a lot of hopelessness. People who find it hard to believe the good news because of the first word, good, that really find it hard to believe that there's anything good in the world at all. For some people, that's the hardest part of the gospel, that there could be anything worth hoping in. And we have a world that every day 
feeds them like an addiction more things to despair about. Have you seen what happened? Did you hear about? Oh, did you know? And always the rumor mill turning of bad news in the world and breeding an attitude of despair and hopelessness. And then you come along and say, well, there's a God in heaven and a Jesus who loves you and there's good news. And it's hard to believe because they've been programmed to despair. Okay, well, that was sunny news. What do you have for us then, Ben? What are we supposed to do? What should be our response to these obstacles that we encounter in ourselves, in our homes, in our friendship, in our workplace? Everywhere we take the good news, we run into the same situation. What should be our response? If you read this passage carefully, you did notice that there actually were that the closest thing you can get to magic words, and they're repeated three times in each of these, once in each of these stories, and the words are simply, come and see. This is not a rational argument. I'm a Christian apologist. I believe in reason and logic. And I believe you give me a question, I can find you an answer, and I can argue my way out of whatever conundrum you give me about the Christian faith. That's not what this is. They were not converted by rational appeal. They were not converted by some kind of um, revivalist experience. There wasn't a big tent meeting somewhere where they went and there was fantastic music and amazing thing happened and everybody you know, responded. Instead, it was something very, very simple. It was not a program. It was not a tool. It was not a method. It was the person of Jesus Himself. The appeal of these people that wanted to share their faith was simply this. We believe if you meet the man, it'll make all the difference. Are there things we could say that might change your mind? Perhaps. Are there events that might point you in that direction? Maybe. But we are convinced if you meet the man, it will make all the difference. And even in the face of the skepticism and despair and prejudice of Nathaniel, that's what Philip says. Come and take a look. That's all I'm asking. Not a look at Christianity as an institution. Not a look at some body of beliefs, although we have some of those but the person of Jesus Himself. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward Him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know Me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What was the program here? What was the method? What was the tool? What was the device? Nothing. What did Philip do right? Almost nothing. One thing he did, you need to meet Jesus. And Jesus said, I knew you before he said that. I mean, here's the crazy thing in this story. Philip believes one way, Nathaniel another, but Jesus knew Nathaniel just as well as he knew Simon in the story before that, or the disciples of John before that. Before anybody was looking for Jesus, he was looking for them. And the person of Jesus was already on the march before anybody ever invented a way of sharing Him. Jesus is the lion in the world. He is already coming for us. A fair bit of Christian evangelism is just getting out of the way and saying, take a look at who He is. And Nathaniel is shocked. He didn't know he was in some kind of system. He didn't know he had been worked into some kind of evangelistic project because he hadn't been. Jesus said, I already knew who you were before you ever heard of me. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Well, that was quick. What changed? He was skeptical, he was prejudiced, he was hopeless five minutes ago. The only thing that changed was that he met Jesus. Philip produced no faith in Nathanael. Wasn't capable of it. Didn't try. He introduced him to the man who could. And Jesus produced faith. Jesus responds to that comment by saying, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this part, I think, is also for us to pay attention to, lest we be deceived, that we might think, oh, well, there was a trick. Didn't you, didn't you catch it? There was a magic trick in there. Nathaniel showed up, and Jesus knew his name. Woo, magic. Jesus showed up, and Nathaniel showed up, and he said, remember when you were under that tree? I knew that already. Ooh, fortune-telling. Well, maybe if we could do that, we could convince people. Jesus says, that's not what's doing it either. Like just as soon as we think, maybe that's it. People say that too. I've heard Christians say that. Man, if I just had some of those miracles the disciples did in the book of Acts, if I could do some of that stuff, Jesus says, parlor tricks. It's the gospel. It's Jesus himself and heaven and earth revolving around him. That's going to change people's minds. And nothing short of that will do. People are not converted by our methods. They are converted by the person of Jesus Himself. What is our task then? When we talk about making the church a big family, making the family a little church, what is our task then? When we talk about Missions Month and the idea of sharing the Gospel. It is not for us to find the latest fad or trend, the greatest book, the greatest method. The thing that has worked for 2,000 years from the first chapter of John is when the church's teachers point to Jesus Himself and say, if you'll get to know Him, it'll change everything. It's when families point to Jesus Himself. Stop trying to convince your family that you're right. Stop trying to convince your family that you got it all figured out. Stop trying to get your family to think the way you do. Make the introduction to Jesus Christ and let Him do the work. Let them see Him more than you. And He'll produce the faith we're looking for. If you have friends that you're trying to bring to Christ, there's no magic question you can ask. But there is a person that they can meet. And when you get out of the way and make that introduction, good things can happen. I'm a believer that where Jesus is, amazing things happen. And the goal then for each of us is to make Jesus the center of every place. In our church, in our home, in our workplace, everywhere we go, when we put Jesus in the middle, everything begins to change and revolve around Him. And we'll see Jesus acting in ways we couldn't have imagined. The world she's a changing and has changed. The way we do things change. And yet Jesus can be in all of it. I, I tried a little experiment this last, um, this last couple of weeks. Experimented on you. Sorry about that. Uh, about 70 or so of you in a certain age bracket. 
uh, I've been sending a text to uh, once a week that says, you know, how can I pray for you this week? And something amazing has happened. Instead of treating the, the cell phone as this great evil, uh, which is always, no one ever got in trouble for preaching against cell phones, right? Okay. Instead of treating it as a great evil, I thought, what a gift. All these church members are walking around with this thing in their pocket. First occurred to me with my own kids. I thought, oh, how do I manage my kids' screen time? And I worry about it all the time. And then I thought, what a gift. My kid has a tracking device in his pocket all the time. Isn't that cool, Tracy? He just voluntarily lets me know where he is all the time. How can this thing that could be harmful be good? I saw it at Winterfest. The preacher's preaching and trying to get a response out of these kids. And they put a slide on the screen and all these kids that are about half dead, it says, hey, respond through our app. And 2,000 cell phones come out. And I thought, well, hey, it's a gift. And so this month I've been texting some of you. Just on a lark, send it out, don't know what will happen. And I've been getting text messages back from some of you with people that I've never heard from intimate prayer request. I've got an insight, beautiful prayer request for others, for yourselves with problems I didn't know you were having. And I've had an opportunity to talk to some of you. And it occurred to me that when Jesus enters something that changes anything, even text messaging. Americans sent two trillion text messages last year. Well, if we're sending them, go ahead and make them about Jesus. That if we put him anywhere, it changes everywhere. This morning, I want to try this. You don't have to move a muscle. If you want to talk about your faith, you can text the church's number and I'll get back to you later today. If you want to talk about a prayer request, let me know. You don't have to get out of your pew. You don't have to move. You don't have to be looked at. It can be private. It can be a question. It can be a concern. Respond with the device in your hand. Do something with the introduction we've made to Jesus. Respond to Him and say, I want to know that person. Come and see and see what good can come of it. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, we pray that You would help us to see Your Son, Jesus. We pray that we would accept no substitute for Him. Do not let us become enamored with any method. Do not let us fall in love with any program. But help us to see Jesus Christ, the man, as the center and object of our faith and the person we must know. Let us know that as much as we are looking for Him, He first was looking for us. Draw us to Him. Call us to Him. And prompt us to respond in some way, in any way, to the person you have sent us, who has lived for us, who has died for us, and now lives forevermore as our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.